Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, January 4th, 2024. The U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia provides a detailed presentation of the unfolding of the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol ahead of the third anniversary, which is in just two days. Republican presidential candidate and former President Donald Trump appeals the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to keep him off the ballot for having violated the Constitution's ban for those who have engaged in insurrection. There have been similar lawsuits in other states. We'll hear from Michigan's Secretary of State and an attorney for Donald Trump. While immigration and border security negotiations continue between Senate Republicans and Democrats, Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, celebrates a new law that speeds up building and expanding bridges connecting the U.S. and Mexico. Vermont and Kentucky governors give state-of-the-state addresses. Secretary of State Antony Blinken heading back to the Middle East as the war between Israel and Hamas shows no sign of slowing down. And the Pentagon press secretary is asked about a U.S. airstrike in Baghdad that killed a leader of a militia supported by Iran, an attack that the Iraqi government is vigorously protesting. Ahead of Saturday's third anniversary of the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol during Congress's counting of electoral ballots in the 2020 presidential election, today, Matt Graves, U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, gave a presentation about that attack, what the pursuit of justice in those cases means to American democracy, and what happens next. It's been three years since a violent mob attacked our capital. Much work has been done to hold members of the mob responsible for the crimes they committed. The prosecutions have necessarily focused on the actions of the individuals charged, not the collective harm done by the thousands of people who were simultaneously committing crimes that day. It is critical, though, that we remember the collective harm that was done on January 6, 2021, and understand how it happened so that we can ensure it never happens again. Also, on the occasion of this anniversary, we request the public's continued assistance in identifying individuals who committed crimes on January 6, 2021, who have yet to be identified, particularly the roughly 80 still unidentified individuals who were believed to have committed acts of violence against law enforcement officers. In furtherance of bringing these people to justice, we will be highlighting some of the most serious assaults that have yet to be charged and providing photographs of the unidentified suspects that the FBI has prepared. Matthew Graves, U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. A Reuters article in early December has this paragraph. The Justice Department has charged more than 1,200 people with taking part in the riot, and more than 900 have either pleaded guilty or been convicted following a trial including dozens who assaulted police officers. A little more from Matthew Graves' presentation. With nearly 900 people convicted to date of crimes committed on January 6, 2021, we are at a point in our prosecutions where thousands of photographs, videos, and communications have been accepted by courts. 
we want to share with you some of the evidence so you have an understanding of the crimes that occurred on January 6, 2021. Before getting into the specifics, though, when you have spent as much time as we have spent reviewing evidence, you were drawn to the big picture. What the events of January 6, 2021 reveal is that our democracy is fragile. The fact that we have existed with peaceful transitions of power for over 200 years is not a guarantee of our future. Nothing is assured. The individual rights we all hold so dear are only protected as long as our democracy continues to exist and we remain a nation committed to upholding the rule of law and peaceful transitions of power after each free and fair election. We must remain vigilant in pursuing justice without fear or favor and holding those accountable who threaten our sacred institutions and refuse to adhere to the laws in this country. That is the why of these prosecutions and is why we continue to pursue this mission without fear or favor and it is why we continue to seek the assistance of the American people. Matthew Graves, U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, he said the statute of limitations to charge people related to the January 6th attack is January 5th, 2026. You can find his full presentation, including the video that he showed related to that attack, some of the evidence that's been introduced in the cases at our website at cspan.org. President Joe Biden's reelection campaign says that he has rescheduled his speech marking the third anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol from this Saturday, the actual anniversary, January 6th, to tomorrow, Friday, January 5th. And that's because of an impending inclement weather situation in the Philadelphia area this weekend. The president plans to speak in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, about, his campaign says, democracy and freedom. Former President Donald Trump on Wednesday asked the Supreme Court to overturn the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling disqualifying him from the state's 2024 Republican primary ballot under the Constitution's 14th Amendment, which prohibits anyone who swore an oath to support the Constitution from holding federal office if that person engaged in insurrection. Donald Trump's attorneys wrote in the petition, the Colorado Supreme Court has no authority to deny President Trump access to the ballot. By doing so, the court has usurped congressional authority and misinterpreted and misapplied the text of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and they write that if the Colorado ruling stands, it will mark the first time in the history of the United States that the judiciary has prevented voters from casting ballots for the leading major party presidential candidate. Many other states have acted on this issue. Maine's Secretary of State also ruling Donald Trump is ineligible. That's being appealed. And Michigan's Supreme Court kept Donald Trump on the ballot. Today, Michigan's Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, a Democrat, said the U.S. Supreme Court needs to step in and settle this. I think there's three things here. One is the substantive question. <clears throat> Second is, is the who. who. Who should be deciding this, this issue of sort of first impression? Uh, and, and at what point is it, is it, is it ripe? Uh, I think, in my view, the, um, the first issue is it's, it's not as, in my view, it's, it's, there are a lot of factual and legal ambiguities. Uh, that that make this not directly analogous to uh, someone who's clearly served <clears throat> two terms and has to, and wants to serve a third, or someone who all the facts uh, affirm was not born in the United States. When the, there are factual and legal ambiguities of of how you define insurrection under this clause, how you define aiding and abetting, how you ensure due process, uh, all of those things are 
are complex and really yield to this question of who should be deciding not just qualifications, but who should be interpreting this in a way that will give us clarity and finality, uh, and then when. Uh, and so all of that has, and I wrote an op-ed uh, in the Washington Post on this in September when this first emerged, is led me to conclude and, and really feel quite strongly that the US Supreme Court needs to decide this sooner rather than later and has to be on the merits and it has to give some sort of clarity and finality to this. Otherwise, we are just going to devolve into a lot of, everyone has their own interpretations and opinions about this and everyone feels theirs is clear and right. And my position is simply it's not as clear cut as many people on both sides are making it out to be. And in that recognition, and in recognition of the fact that whatever we do in this matter of first impression creates a precedent for the future. Uh, we have to be very careful, transparent, and completely by the book in how this should play out. And if I were, in my view, that's what the US Supreme Court is for. We can debate and discuss you know, the current makeup of the US Supreme Court and all of that right now. Yes, that's a reality. But from a legal standpoint, from a legal precedent standpoint, in my view, when you have these questions of fact and law, it's the job of the courts to figure that out. It's not the job of one politician to make that call. And I've said that clearly, I've said that as a Secretary of State, the vast majority of my colleagues have agreed and, and, and moved in alignment. So we'll see how it plays out. Uh, and I'm hopeful and very hopeful and, and believe that the US Supreme Court will provide some clarity sooner rather than later. I hope they don't kick it to Congress. I fear they might say this is a decision for Congress to make, which is like, again, like substantively, like for me, like the worst possible thing to think of, because then it's gonna just evolve into politics in terms of factual determination, legal determination, but I, I suspect that may be how it plays out given past precedent and comments they've made in other cases on this sort of area. Uh, so we'll see, um, but it's not, but yeah, so I, I think, and, and we are on the path for getting, I mean, uh, Donald Trump, I think, filed in the US Supreme Court yesterday or this week. We, my say will be, I, I will be filing an amicus uh, to the US Supreme Court on Monday, asking for a substantive decision on the merits as soon as possible. And my hope is that whatever that decision is, uh, provides some sort of finality so that we can move on with, a, with uh, you know, the, the administration of our elections. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, a Democrat at the American Association of Law Schools annual meeting in Washington, D.C. today. Alina Haba, lawyer for Donald Trump, was interviewed on Fox News Wednesday night about the ballot disqualification cases involving the insurrection clause of the Constitution's 14th Amendment. She was asked to respond to a New York Times reporter who said that Donald Trump is worried about how the Supreme Court may rule. This is what Maggie Haberman had to say about the three justices that were appointed under President Trump and potential concerns about that. Watch this. He has also voiced some concern that a court that has, you know, he appointed uh, three of the justices uh, to the Supreme Court and it gave a, the conservatives a supermajority. He is concerned that they are going to look as if they're trying not to rule in his favor and might rule against him. What do you say about that, Alina? Yeah, that's a, that's a concern that he's voiced to me. Um, he's voiced to everybody publicly, not privately. And I can tell you that his concern 
is a valid one. You know, Republicans are conservative. They get nervous. They unfortunately are uh, sometimes shy away from being pro-Trump because they feel that even if the law's on our side, uh, they may appear to be swayed much like the Democratic side would do, right? So they're trying so hard to look neutral that sometimes they make the wrong call. Um, and I just encourage them to really look at the law and the Constitution. It's a very clean cut, Martha. There's no, there's no politics that should be involved in this. It's just simply American. And if the justices read the law as I do, as, as most Americans and attorneys do, even Dershowitz, who's a known liberal, um, it's just a simple decision and it should have nothing to do with if you're a Republican or a Democrat. So I don't know. It's Maggie. I'm a, fan, I'm a friend of Maggie's, even though we're on different sides of the coin. But she's right. The president's always concerned about people worrying about that. Alina Haba, lawyer for Donald Trump on Fox News Wednesday night. This is Washington Today. The White House is reacting to the shooting at Perry High School in Perry, Iowa this morning. Officials say that it happened minutes before classes were scheduled to start on this first day of school after the winter break. Fox 9 in Perry writes that a 17-year-old boy killed a sixth grader and wounded five others in a shooting at Perry High School in Perry, Iowa on the student's first day. When police responded to the school at 7.37 a.m., they found the shooter's 17-year-old Dylan Butler, a student with self-inflicted gunshot wounds as well as an improvised explosive device in the school. At the same time, authorities located six people who had been shot, including the sixth grade student who was killed. At the White House briefing, here is the press secretary, Karina Jean-Pierre. The president is tracking the tragic school shooting at Perry Middle and High School in, in Iowa. Our hearts break for the families of the victims in yet another act of senseless gun violence. We are grateful for the brave first responders who are on the scene. And unfortunately, there is no longer an active threat to the school. I should say fortunate, not unfortunately. Senior White House staff have been in touch with the governor's office and federal officials are working with local law enforcement to support their investigation. We will know more as they complete their work. It's only the fourth day in the year, in the new year, and we are already faced with yet another horrific school shooting. And the question that we ask is when will enough be enough? The questions that families ask and the victims of families ask is when will it be enough? When will enough be enough? Our students and teachers deserve to know that their schools are safe spaces and to focus on learning, not duck and cover drills. Corrine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, opening up today's briefing. She also talked about immigration and border security. Capitol Hill reporters say that the bipartisan Senate negotiations are still ongoing. Politico's Ursula Perano posting Wednesday night that Senators Murphy, Cinema, and Langford just wrapped up a two-plus-hour meeting on border. Murphy not sounding optimistic that they'll have a deal by next week. I think it's not smart to put timelines on it, given the fact that we have not been able to get something to our colleagues by this point, a quote from Senator Murphy. Without a border security agreement, Senate Republicans say they will not support the president's request for aid to Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan, and any Senate deal would still need to be approved by the House, controlled by Republicans who said they want tougher measures like the bill that they passed last year. More from the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. 
In an interview with CBS News, House Speaker Johnson said on his first day in office, President Biden came in and issued executive orders that began this chaos. Did any of the administration's policies contribute to the record number of border crossings? What I can say is this. On the, his first day in this administration, the president put forth a comprehensive immigration piece, legislation to deal with a broken system. That's what the president did, to deal with a broken system. We were just a couple of weeks away of three years ago, that, that legislation that he put forward to Congress to actually deal with an issue, all right? And so that's what I can say. The president, president understand that there's a problem at the border. He put forth on his first day something to deal with that problem. And what we continue to see from Speaker Johnson and Republicans, House Republicans, I know Jackie asked a question about something that I said yesterday in May, and I'll repeat it, I repeat what I said yesterday, in May, House Republicans decided to vote on a bill that would cut 2,000 border, border Patrol agents at the border. That's what they did. That's what they did. And they continue to obstruct and get in the way of trying to, of the president wanting to move forward with a supplemental that includes border security. They're getting in the way of it. They're, they are. While Senate Republicans and Democrats in a bipartisan way are trying to find a way, a bipartisan agreement to deal with border security, you have House Republicans who left. They left in the middle of December. And I think they come back next week. Maybe they'll get some work done. Uh, instead, they're playing politics. So is that a no? I, look, what I can say is what the president has done. I'm not going to speak to data. I have not seen any data that would show this, so certainly I can't speak to that. What I can say is the, the actions and what the president has done and how seriously he has taken this on his first day, his first day, understanding that this system has been broken for decades. This immigration system has been broken for decades. Under a Republican president, under a Democratic president, it has been broken. As negotiations continue, are there any red lines for the White House when it comes to negotiating um, uh, what Republicans are demanding when it comes to policy? I, look, I'm going to be stay consistent here. I'm not going to negotiate from here, from the podium. I'm going to let folks who are negotiating, the senators, both on the Democratic side and obviously on the Republican side, who are uh, who are negotiating this. Obviously, we have been involved. They've been talking through the holidays. We really appreciate their efforts here. We think we're headed in the right direction. And so we're going to, it is best from this podium to not get involved and not inject myself uh, into the conversation. And so we're going to let them do their job. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre taking reporters' questions in the White House briefing room. Story from Associated Press, the Justice Department on Wednesday sued Texas over a new law that would allow police to arrest migrants who enter the U.S. illegally, taking Republican Governor Greg Abbott to court again over his escalating response to border crossers arriving from Mexico. The lawsuit asked a federal court in Austin to declare the Texas law unconstitutional. It calls the measure a violation of the Supremacy Clause, which establishes that federal laws in most cases supersede state law. That reporting from AP. Texas Governor Greg Abbott was interviewed on Fox Business Channel. The DOJ is suing you, suing your state over your new border security law allowing police enforcement officers to arrest illegal migrants. Uh, maybe judges could deport them. What's your response to the DOJ's suing you for taking action on the border? Well, it's outrageous, uh, Stuart, because think about this simple fact. Uh, and that is, we are actually involved in three legal actions uh, with the Biden administration right now, where the Biden administration uh, is trying to stop Texas uh, from denying illegal entry into the country. Here's the point. Uh, if the Biden administration would put that time into securing the border, 
as opposed to stopping Texas from securing the border, then we wouldn't have a problem whatsoever. Uh, but because Joe Biden and, and the Democrats refuse to secure the border, Texas has and we will uh, continue to erect barriers, uh, repel migrants, as well as uh, bus and fly migrants to New York, Chicago, and other places like that. How much is this costing you in Texas? So this has been an extraordinary burden by Texas taxpayers. Uh, you remember that wall that uh, Donald Trump put up? We are putting up a wall just like that. Walls and barriers like that are not cheap, nor is it cheap for us to deploy thousands of National Guard to the border. The point is this. Uh, since Joe Biden has taken office, uh, Texas taxpayers uh, have borne the brunt of about $10 billion in cost uh, for Texas to do the federal government's job to try to secure the border. Texas Governor Greg Abbott on the Fox Business Channel today. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican from Texas, joined Congressman Henry Cuellar, Democrat from Texas, to applaud a new law making it easier to build new bridges and expand existing ones connecting the U.S. and Mexico across the Rio Grande, They held a news conference at the World Trade Bridge in Laredo. Here is Senator Cruz. Under the terms of the legislation on December 22nd, a shot clock starts. Starting on that day, the State Department has 60 days to submit its recommendation to the President of the United States. At the end of the 60 days, a second shot clock starts. And the President of the United States has 60 days to grant the permit. And if the president does not act, at the expiration of those 60 days, the permit is deemed granted automatically by operation of law. That means with the clock starting on December 22nd, on April 20th, the two shot clocks expire. And on April 20th, we will have a decision, we will have the presidential permit to go forward, which means this bridge And not just this bridge, but bridges in Webb County here, in Cameron County, in Maverick County, bridges all along the Rio Grande River, four different bridge projects that now will have the green light to go forward. This is a win for Texas farmers and ranchers. This is a win for Texas small businesses and manufacturers. This is a win for jobs. This is thousands of jobs here in South Texas and all across Texas. This is also a win for national security. One of the things we're seeing is we're seeing more and more onshoring and nearshoring of manufacturing coming from China, some of it coming back to the United States, some of it coming to Mexico, our close friend and ally and bringing that manufacturing back to North America is unequivocally good for for U.S. national security, making us less dependent on China. And this is a win for the environment. Right now on any given day you can go south of the border and you could see a line of 18-wheelers sometimes extending four, five, six miles sitting there for hours on end, spewing pollution into the air. That's not good for the environment. It's much better for the environment to have enough lanes open, enough bridges open, that the trade and commerce can move quickly and expeditiously. Senator Ted Cruz at a news conference in Laredo, Texas.
The Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas says that Mexico became the top U.S. trading partner at the beginning of 2023, with total bilateral trade between the two countries totaling $263 billion during the first four months of the year, representing 15.4% of all goods exported and imported to and from the U.S. Canada is close behind. China is number three. Today, the United Nations published its World Economic Situation and Prospects Report. Shen Tanu Mukherjee, director of the Economic Analysis and Policy Division at the U.N. Department of Economic and Social Affairs, joined a news conference at the U.N. in New York City with the details. Our report finds that global growth for 2023 will turn out to be at around 2.7 percent, which is up from 2.3% that we were expecting in May 2023. But our forecast for 2024 is lower, down to 2.4%. In a nutshell, the world is struggling to get back to the 3.0% annual average from 2000 to 2019, representing years of subpar growth. Also, the better-than-expected performance for 2023 is chiefly driven by several large economies, notably the United States, but also Brazil, India, and Mexico. Overall, developing economies' growth remains pretty static at about 4% over 2022 to 25, a little higher for LDCs, but still well below the SDG target of at least 7%. Now, Across the world, inflation is expected to be at an average of 3.9% in 2024, a decline of about a third from last year. And that's a rapid change. Back in 2022, we were seeing 8.1%. But, and there's a caveat, in about a quarter of all developing countries, the annual inflation forecast for 2024 is over 10%. That'll be eroding away what people's earnings can buy and inflicting further pain, especially on the middle class and people in poverty. And hunger will continue to be a special concern because local food price inflation remains high in many developing countries. And this is a situation which could easily be aggravated by shocks to domestic food production or even to the global food supply. Next, on to the headwinds. Now, while recent global trends in growth and inflation appear to be positive, there are significant differences across countries and considerable downside risks. These together are weighing down on expectations for this year, as well as on the prospects for achieving the SDGs by 2030. The report identifies these challenges as arising from monetary tightening, weak global trade and investment, and rising debt vulnerabilities, compounded by heightened geopolitical risks and the rapidly worsening impacts of climate change. Shantanu Mukherjee is with the United Nations Department of Economic and Social Affairs at a news conference today at the UN in New York City on the launch of the annual World Economic Situation Prospects Report. On Wall Street today, the Dow down 10, NASDAQ down 81, S&P down 16. The Biden administration announced $162 million in federal money for the company Microchip Technology to expand production of computer chips at factories in Colorado Springs, Colorado and Gresham, Oregon. Commerce Department says over 700 direct construction and manufacturing jobs will be created. 
This is the second pot of money from the 2022 Chips and Science Act. The start of the new year means that state legislatures are convening around the country and governors are starting to give their annual State of the State addresses. In Vermont, Governor Phil Scott today, the only current Republican elected statewide in Vermont, spoke to the legislature in Montpelier, and one issue he covered was the budget. We must also acknowledge our crisis of affordability is making it difficult to address public safety, as well as other areas like education and health care. And the high cost of everyday life in Vermont is dulling the tools we put in place to keep and attract working families. In three weeks, I'll present my budget for fiscal year 2025, and it will be a much different picture than previous years. Sobering comes to mind. With historic one-time federal aid ending, with a large increase in our pension obligation, last year's spending decisions catching up to us. We're back to where we were several years ago with difficult decisions to be made. For many of you, this will be the first time you'll work on a budget without hundreds of millions of dollars in surplus. For others, it's deja vu. Once again, we'll face the discomfort of saying no, choosing between many good things, and maintaining the discipline to focus on what Vermonters need most. I continue to believe we need to keep our spending within existing revenue. So in full transparency, you can expect my budget will increase by about 3%. I know from experience, many of you view 3% growth as an austerity approach. So it's important to know that with this increase and after meeting our obligations, we have very little money left. So if you go higher, we'll be spending more than we're taking in leading to higher taxes and fees, adding to the burden Vermonters are already feeling. I'm sure you're aware the federal government just announced this increase for those on Social Security, which is 3.2 percent. So if our seniors are expected to manage to that, it seems as though we should do the same. Vermont Governor Phil Scott, a Republican, giving his State of the State address to the legislature in Montpelier. He has been in office since his first victory in 2016. Vermont's governor serves a two-year term. He's been reelected every year since. In 2022, he got 71% of the vote. There are no term limits for the governor in Vermont. Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear, a Democrat, just won a second four-year term in 2022 by a closer 50 to 47%. There are term limits there. He cannot serve a third four-year term. Wednesday night, he gave his State of the Commonwealth address in Frankfurt and urged bipartisanship. Over the past four years, we have gotten through so many hard times together. And now we're getting to the good times together. We've arrived here by leading with kindness, compassion, and empathy for one another. That's what my faith teaches me, to love my neighbor as myself. It's that golden rule and the parable of the Good Samaritan that have guided us and should guide us. It is those who have stepped up, set politics and division aside just to help each other, because that's who we are as Kentuckians. No pandemic, 
No tornado, no flood, or any other challenge will ever change that. How we dealt with these historic challenges wasn't red or blue. It wasn't R or D. It was just us, Team Kentucky, where everybody matters. Tonight, we're going to discuss how we can embrace a new era as an economic and a moral leader in this country. And we'll take the time to highlight the amazing stories of those who are helping us turn the last four years of progress into decades of prosperity. As we look forward to brighter days, I want you to hear about our Good Samaritans, our helpers, our heroes, who are out there day in and day out making a difference. Or as Poet Laureate Silas House described them, those who carry us. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir, a Democrat, giving his State of the Commonwealth address Wednesday night in Frankfort, Kentucky. Washington Today continues in a moment. People often think C-SPAN is funded by the federal government. In fact, we're a nonprofit organization that receives no government funding. As news consumption changes, you can help ensure the future of C-SPAN's unfiltered coverage of national government and politics. We hope you will consider making a tax-deductible contribution that will support our daily editorial operations. To learn more, visit cspan.org slash donate. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast wherever you find your podcasts and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app, which is free. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, writes AP, heads to the Middle East this weekend for the fourth time since the Israel-Hamas war erupted in October, as once abated fears about a regional conflagration are surging with attacks and assassinations in the Red Sea, Lebanon, Iran, and Iraq. The Biden administration had breathed a sigh of relief about the potential for a broader Mideast war in the immediate aftermath of Israel's military response to the deadly October 7th Hamas attack when it counseled Israeli officials not to mount preemptive strikes against Hezbollah in Lebanon. Two and a half months later, though, the chances of a regional war have increased with Israel determined to strike Hamas operatives and leaders no matter where they are. And Iranian proxies like Hezbollah, Yemen's Houthi rebels, and pro-Iran militias stepping up attacks on U.S., Israeli, and international interests in the Red Sea, Iraq, and Syria. That reporting from AP. Here's the State Department spokesperson, Matthew Miller, with the details on the Secretary's travels. Later today, Secretary Blinken will depart for his fourth trip to the Middle East since the terrorist attacks of October 7th, as well as to stops in Europe. Over the course of the next week, the Secretary will visit Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Israel, the West Bank, and Egypt for meetings with foreign counterparts and others. The Secretary will focus on a number of critical issues on this trip. First, he will discuss immediate measures to increase substantially humanitarian assistance to Gaza. The United States has played a critical role in unlocking humanitarian assistance for the Palestinian people, but conditions remain extremely difficult. The Secretary will stress the imperative of expanding and sustaining safe access for humanitarian organizations to deliver food, water, medicine, as well as for commercial goods to enter all areas of Gaza. Second, 
He will discuss with the government of Israel its ongoing military campaign against Hamas to ensure October 7th cannot be repeated, including plans to transition to the next phase of operations and how to, uh, uh, the steps Israel can take to better protect civilians and how to enable Palestinians to return to their homes and neighborhoods as fighting curtails. He will also stress to the government of Israel the need to do more to lower tensions in the West Bank. Third, he will discuss ongoing efforts to bring home the remaining hostages, including the American citizens who are still unaccounted for. The Secretary has no higher priority than the safety and security of American citizens, and he will not rest as long as Americans, along with Israelis and citizens of many other countries, continue to be held captive. Fourth, he will focus on, as he has consistently since October 7th, preventing the conflict from expanding. He will discuss specific steps parties can take, including how they can use their influence with others in the region to avoid escalation. It is in no one's interest, not Israel's, not the region's, not the world's, for this conflict to spread beyond Gaza. As part of those discussions, he will raise the need to take steps to deter the Houthis' attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. Finally, he will emphasize the responsibility of all parties to help chart a path forward for Gaza that achieves lasting security for both Israelis and Palestinians, as well as a more peaceful, integrated region, building on the principles he laid out in Tokyo on November 8th, and including a sustained mechanism for reconstruction and Palestinian-led governance of a unified West Bank and Gaza. Matthew Miller is the spokesperson at the State Department, starting off his briefing today in Washington. This story from Reuters, a senior official in the U.S. Education Department, stepped down on Wednesday, citing President Joe Biden's handling of the conflict in Gaza, the latest sign of dissent in the administration, as deaths continue to grow in the war. Also on Wednesday, 17 Biden re-election campaign staffers issued a warning in an anonymous letter that Biden could lose voters over the issue. That was the article from Reuters. The senior official at the Education Department, Tariq Habash, special assistant in the Office of Planning, Evaluation and Policy Development, was interviewed on CNN Wednesday night about his decision. I tried to use every opportunity I could to raise alarm bells across the administration within the Department of Education and up to up to and through the White House. And unfortunately, those alarm bells weren't heard. And so I'm just trying to grab the biggest microphone I can to reach the president to emphasize how important it is right now to end the the destruction and the violence that is um, sacrificing thousands of lives. So my understanding is that you um, met with Secretary Cardona about this. How did he take your decision to leave the administration and the critique that you're making here? You know, the secretary has been extremely understanding. He's been very supportive of me uh, putting myself and my family first uh, at the end of the day. Um, you know, we've had numerous conversations over recent months and he's checked on, checked up on me periodically. Um, the reality is that, you know, the administration continues to support policies that are engaging in excessive violence against innocent Palestinian lives and the refusal by the president to call for an immediate and permanent ceasefire is untenable with um, the um, the belief by millions of Americans across this country, the majority of Democratic voters who support peace and a ceasefire. Tariq Abash, Palestinian-American, former political appointee to the Education Department, Wednesday night on CNN. After his resignation, he had been serving in the Biden administration for almost three years.
The story from CBS News, an airstrike on the logistical support headquarters of an Iran-backed militia in central Baghdad Thursday killed a high-ranking militia commander, militia officials said. The airstrike was carried out by the United States, a U.S. official told CBS. In a statement, Iraq's foreign ministry called the strike a dangerous escalation and said that Iraq reserves its right to take a firm stance on all necessary measures to deter anyone who tries to harm its territory and its security forces. That was CBS News reporting. The Pentagon press secretary, Pat Ryder, spoke about this in his opening statement at his news conference today. I can confirm that on January 4, at approximately 12 p.m. Iraq time, U.S. forces took necessary and proportionate action against Mushtaq Jawad Kazim al-Jawari, a.k.a. Abu Taqwa, who is a Harakat al-Najua leader. Abu Taqwa was actively involved in planning and carrying out attacks against American personnel. The strike also killed another Han member. It is important to note that the strike was taken in self-defense, that no civilians were harmed, and that no infrastructure or facilities were struck. The Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder, also an Air Force Brigadier General, Associated Press writing about this since the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war on October 7th, a group of Iranian-backed militias calling itself the Islamic resistance in Iraq has carried out more than 100 attacks on bases housing U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. The group has said the attacks are in retaliation for Washington's support of Israel in the war against Hamas that has killed more than 20,000 people in Gaza and that they aim to push U.S. forces out of Iraq. Again, from AP. More from the Pentagon Press Secretary's news conference. A couple follow-up questions on the Iraq strike. Uh, you call this a self-defense strike. What attacks was this group, Harakat al-Nujaba, uh, responsible for, and how many? Uh, did you notify the Iraqi government in advance? And, and given the condemnation of U.S. strikes in Iraq that we've seen uh, in the course of the past couple weeks, do you think the U.S. military presence in Iraq is, is at risk? Have you seen a tension there? Yeah, thanks, Orrin. So uh, again, I'm not going to have any more details to provide as it relates uh, to this this particular strike, uh, and uh, you know, in, in terms of the specific attacks uh, that that Han has conducted against U.S. forces in in Iraq and Syria. As you well know, you've been following this for a while. Uh, those attacks have continued, putting U.S. forces in danger. Uh, and as I just highlighted to, uh, to Jennifer, we maintain the inherent right of self-defense and will continue to take necessary actions to protect our personnel. But how many of the 120 attacks has this Harakat al-Nujba? Uh, I'm not going to get into a, a breakdown. Uh, so as far as your other question, um, you know, Iraq is an important and valued partner. Uh, our forces are there at the invitation of the government of Iraq to help train and advise in support of the defeat ISIS mission. And so, as we have been doing all along, we will continue to consult closely with the Iraqi government about the safety and security of U.S. forces. Uh, in the meantime, we will continue to stay very focused on that defeat ISIS mission. Are you able to say whether you notified the Iraqi government in, in advance? I'm not going to get into diplomatic discussions. Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder taking questions in the Pentagon briefing room from reporters. The group ISIS, also called Islamic State, today claimed responsibility for the bombings in Iran yesterday during a memorial procession for an Iranian general who was killed four years ago by a U.S. drone. Iran says 84 people were killed in the bombings. ISIS posting on Telegram that the attack was a dual martyrdom operation with two militants detonating explosive belts near the grave of the hypocrite leader. 
At the White House Today, spokesperson John Kirby asked what this means for the Middle East. Does the administration believe that the blast in Tehran is linked to efforts to widen the Gaza war to the broader Middle East? And I asked the same question about the U.S. strike in Baghdad that we reported today. On the U.S. strike, I'm going to refer you to the Department of Defense. I'm not in a position to speak to that uh, specifically. Um, uh, uh, I, I don't, I, I haven't seen anything that, uh, that indicates there's a direct link to what's going on in Gaza and with uh, the attack in, in Iran um, on the anniversary of Soleimani's death. I, I, I just, I haven't seen anything tangible that would tell me that there's a, a link there. John Kirby is Strategic Communications Coordinator for the White House National Security Council. From a New York Times article, the Islamic State, a Sunni Muslim organization, considers its mission to kill apostate Muslims, including Shiites, Iran, a majority Shiite country, is led by a theocratic government in which Shiite clerics are in charge. John Kirby also spoke today about the war in Ukraine. He said that U.S. intelligence has determined that Russia is seeking close-range ballistic missiles from Iran and has already acquired ballistic missiles from North Korea, and at least one of those missiles has been fired into Ukraine. Our information indicates that the Democratic People's Republic of Korea recently provided Russia with ballistic missile launchers and several ballistic missiles. On the 30th of December, 2023, Russian forces launched at least one of these North Korean ballistic missiles into Ukraine. This missile appears to have landed in an open field in the Zaporizhia region. And on January 2nd, Russia launched multiple North Korean ballistic missiles into Ukraine, including as part of its overnight aerial attack. We're still assessing the impacts of these additional missiles. We're releasing a graphic here, which you can see behind me, that documents the launch of these missiles from Russia into Ukraine. And as you can see, the graphic shows the area from which Russia launched the North Korean supplied ballistic missiles on those two dates, as well as the impact location inside Ukraine of the missile that was launched on the 30th of December. And as I said, we're still assessing the impacts of the other additional missiles that were launched on the 2nd. We expect Russia and North Korea to learn from these launches. And we anticipate that Russia will use additional North Korean missiles to target Ukraine's civilian infrastructure and to kill innocent Ukrainian civilians. These North Korean ballistic missiles are capable of ranges of approximately 900 kilometers. That's about 550 miles. This is a significant and concerning escalation in the DPRK's support for Russia. Now, in return for its support, we assess that Pyongyang is seeking military assistance from Russia, including fighter aircraft, surface-to-air missiles, armored vehicles, ballistic missile production equipment or materials, and other advanced technologies. This would have concerning security implications for the North, uh, I'm sorry, for the Korean Peninsula and the Indo-Pacific region. We've also said publicly that Russia is seeking to acquire close-range ballistic missiles from Iran. At this time, we do not believe that Iran has delivered close-range ballistic missiles to Russia. However, the United States is concerned that Russian negotiations to acquire close-range ballistic missiles from Iran are actively advancing. John Kirby is Strategic Communications Coordinator for the White House National Security Council. He said that Russia's procurement of ballistic missiles from North Korea directly violates multiple United Nations Security Council resolutions, and the U.S. will raise that issue at the Council. And he says the U.S. will impose additional sanctions against those working to facilitate arms transfers between Russia and North Korea and between Russia and Iran. Today, Russian President Vladimir Putin 
made it easier to gain Russian citizenship for foreigners who joined his country's military. He signed a decree allowing the path to Russian citizenship as the war in Ukraine nears a two-year mark. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word, and get the stories making headlines in Washington emailed to you every day. You can subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. It is free. Have a good night.